truth is ever to be found in simplicity and not in the multiplicity and confusion of things. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Da, 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 da. Oh, yeah, baby Isaac Newton. Matt, that was a perfect way to start the New Year podcast. Yeah, with a bit of newty baby. Oh, I mean, does it get any better than him? Isaac Newton, the bark of physics. January 4th, 1643, or 25th of December in the old calendar, Matt. Was, was Isaac Newton born on Christmas Day? Mm, probably, really, we should it, we, we should consider it 4th of January just because the way the calendar worked yeah, back then. Yeah, I think we should. Yeah, exactly. So, Happy New Year, Matt, and Happy New Year, everybody. Are you, uh, are you having a good start to the year? Let us know. Get in touch. Well, it's been a quite a good start to the year, hasn't it? Oh, it has. Th- there's something quite exciting. Go on. Uh, everyone started noticing that uh, Beetlejuice, or Betelgaze, depending on how you want to say it, <laughs> yeah. Um, um, had started to get really dim, and it is quite noticeable, Jamie. Whenever you get the chance to see it, look at Orion, just notice how much dimmer uh, Betelgeuse is. Oh, really? Yeah, well, yeah. It's, it's, well, it was in the top ten. It was in one of the. It was in the top ten brightest stars, and it's no longer in that top ten for the first time in decades. Oh God! I blame Elon Musk and all his satellites. But <laughs> I don't think I, for this this time. I don't think it's that. <laughs> Not his fault. Okay. Not his fault. Um, but we we shall be speaking about that later on, and and that actually um, does uh, play into the guest that we have this week, Mordebar Jar. Absolutely. Who, uh, you, you may have seen on TED Talks, but I wanted to get this one out because I think that. Um, the pollution of space might be a big topic this year, particularly with things like Starlink. So yeah. I thought I'd, I thought I'd have that one in. Jamie, reason why I wanted to speak about Betelgeuse is because there's been a lot of speculation, of course, because everyone's thinking maybe this is it. Maybe we're about to see her go supernova. Oh my goodness, that is what I'm talking about. If you uh, refer back to our The Sun episode... Oh, that classic, yeah. Yeah, yeah. uh, We we go through the process of how uh, a star, when it runs out of its nuclear fuel, collapses in this kind of runaway cataclysm. That's right. And then and then it, it'll blow up into a great big supernova as it all all the material bounces back out of this this kind of collapse of the stellar core. Now Betelgeuse is 900 times the radius of the sun. <laughs> so, yeah, so it would stretch right the way out to Jupiter if it was plonked in the middle of the solar system. That's big. It's it's absolutely ridiculous. In fact, it's so big and actually so near. It's only 640 light years away. Is that that it? we can actually we can image the surface of Betelgeuse. Now, if it does go supernova, it would be such an amazing uh, thing in the night sky. Yeah. It would be brighter than the moon, God. brighter than the full moon probably. 
Yeah, and 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 it would be clearly visible up in the night, up in the day sky, possibly for a couple of years. So Damn. it it would be absolutely. And and the thing is, you'd be able to see this. It's not like a sort of slow event. It's a mm. it's, it's a really quick event. Now, has this dimming meant that this is what we're going to see? Or has it? Well, the answer, as always, Jamie, with exciting oh. headline news, is it's not really. Oh, for f- I know. People the thing are always is, letting me down, Matt, especially the papers. Imagine how big the surface of Betelgeuse is, right? You've got mm. this bubbling gas, bubbling hot gas that's... That's that that we can see from here, six hundred and forty light years away, mm. uh, and really, it's the processes that are going on in this gas, the atmosphere of the star, that that essentially are what's causing this dimming. And it's very, very unlikely that we can actually see what's happening in the core from what's happening visually. Do you see what I mean? And I the do, only yeah. way that yeah, so basically we know that Betelgeuse has started to uh, use helium fusion rather than hydrogen fusion right. to make helium. It's now fusing helium to make carbon. We know that. But the moment it switches to carbon fusion, then it becomes prone to collapse because obviously the carbon is very, very heavy and it will right. suddenly collapse. Now, it's not a visual thing, though. The, the way we'd be able to tell that is from the neutrinos that it's putting out. But we just don't have neutrino detectors that are sensitive enough to see this neutrino stream come off. So, Did anyone get basically... a neutrino detector for Christmas? If let so, us know. point it at Betelgeuse and let us know. But, but basically, we just don't know, Jamie, whether this dimming has anything to do with whether we're going to see... Mm. Uh, something amazing or not. Um, but it looks unlikely and that we'll still have to wait hundreds, if not thousands of years for this stellar event, which is very, very short in terms of astronomical times. But, of course, in the lifetime of you and me, Jamie, it's it's um, Well, you know what, Matt? Morgan Freeman in The Shawshank Redemption said that hope can kill a man. But I remain forever hopeful. I'm going to kill you, though, Jamie. Oh, no. In, in... <laughs> Happy New Year. <laughs> this is the year oh. Matt finally has enough of my bullshit. You don't know my new address, do you? No. Exactly. I've actually got a couple of, I've got a couple of students called Hope. Now I'm you? a bit scared of them. Oh, yeah. God. Uh, Jamie, the, the the final flight of 2019 was the Chinese. Yes. Long March Five. As we as we as we as we shall see, I'm trying to speak it. Chinese. <laughs> as we shall see, <laughs> um, that's going to be quite important. It really is, Matt. It's getting their moon ambitions back on track, don't you think? And Mars. Oh yeah. So it's both. It's you'll see that a Long March Five plays quite a big part in, in quite a few things they're doing so shall we just have a quick preview of 2020 before we go over to Moribajar? let's do a quick snapshot of the year ahead very exciting year it's one of those biennial times of the calendar jamie that we mm. can actually go to mars finally there's going to be four mars tastic trips uh-huh. this year 
So let's start with the the, the big one. Is uh, NASA twenty twenty Mars rover? Oh yes. And of course, there's going to be a repeat performance of the seven minutes of terror. Oh, don't say that. The thing is, we're going to have to wait till twenty twenty one February before that seven minutes of terror. So even though these are launching this year, they won't be arriving until next year. Jeez Louise. That's how far away Mars is. So it is far. depressing, isn't it? Yeah. So, yes, 17th of July. July is going to be an epic month, Jamie. You've got to strap yourself down for July because there's so much going on. 17th, okay, go. 17th of July launch. And, uh, yes, um, that will be February landing. He's got 23 cameras on board. Uh, it's also, the, the exciting bit is the sample caching system. So it's going to be drilling holes and, and keeping some of that rock. That is exciting. For an Earth return. Ooh. It's got a new wheel design and a better turret. And the turret is better for holding an instrument. So you're going to like this, Jamie, because I know you like a good acronym. I do. So this is 2020's acronym of the week. It's a Space new Space acronym of the week. <laughs> Sherlock. Okay, I like it already. The scanning habitable environments with ramen and luminescence for organics and chemicals. Now that I like. Most yes. of them I'm like, oh, is that the best you could have done? But yeah. Sherlock, Sherlock, I'm into. Sherlock. So yes, Sherlock is going to be mounted on the robot's arm and it's got uh, lasers and cameras, oh, and it's yeah. going to be looking for microbial life. Get in. Luther Beagle. I mean, this is great, isn't it? They're all named after after British detectives, Luther, Sherlock. <laughs> so here we go. Luther Beagle, the principal investigator of the Sherlock instrument, said, Key driving questions are whether Mars is or was ever inhabited, and if not, why not? The Sherlock investigation will advance the understanding of Martian geological history and identify its past biological potential. Is he from the Wild West in the 1800s? Luther Beagle. Isn't that a great name? It's a great name. Well, maybe it's after Van Dross, the cardigan-wearing legend. Luther looking after Sherlock. And Beagle, of course, is the name of the doomed British Mars lander. That's right. Yeah, wow. Or, right, or, or, or uh, Charles Darwin's boat. That's very true. So Sherlock's only going to... It goes two inches above what it's trying to look at and uses a magnifying glass, just like Sherlock would have done. Okay. <laughs> uh, and get this, guess what the name of the camera on board that particular instrument is going to be called? Columbo? No. Uh, who was Sherlock's helper? Oh, Watson. Watson. Yeah. <laughs> Watson is the name of the camera. So it's Sherlock and Watson are going to that be looking tense. around. I love it. What's really exciting is Sherlock's going to be carrying tiny bits of Martian meteorite that have come to Earth and we're taking back to Mars. Oh. Isn't that isn't that crazy? That's nuts. Well, imagine and, how expensive that bit, little bit of root a Mars rock would be, Matt. Yeah, it's it's well it's crazy. And it's also it's going to be carrying bits of spacesuit as well, I believe that it's going yeah. to be test that it's going to be testing. Now, not only will 2020 rover be taking Sherlock, it will also be taking a freaking Mars helicopter. Ooh, yes. I mean, God, can you imagine the images from that? Oh, 
So we are going to have to wait till next 2021 till we see the um, beautiful pictures of a helicopter taking off on Mars. I, I just simply can't wait. That's going to be so brilliant. Um, and then uh, mission number two, Jane. We were only, we're only we've only covered just mission number one, two. number one. And of course, ESA and Roscosmos's mission to Mars has been named after you, Jamie. It has. The, the host of the Interplanetary Podcast, the Franklin Rover. Franklin Rover. I don't know who this Rosalind person is. No, but not important. Sh- sh- sharing it with you, Rosalind Franklin Rover is going to Mars on the twenty fifth of July, a week after the twenty twenty Rover. Oh, that's busy, busy old time, as you said. And of course, um, just like you, Jamie, the rover was mostly built here in the UK. Yeah, um, it's twice the size of Opportunity that just died like last year, uh, but a third the size of Curiosity, just like you. Blimey! And uh, yes, uh, the the wheels and suspension were paid for and built by the Canadian Space Agency. Oh, God love them. So that's very cool, isn't it? Roscosmos are going to be supplying the radioisotope heater units mm. that, that's going to keep the rover warm. And it's going to be looking for biosignatures from the past using its analytical laboratory drawer or the ALD. Oh, yes. And do you want to hear my, my second space acronym of the week? Oh, go on. Is <laughs> is your mama, your mum, ma? Okay. Is Mars Organic Molecule Analyzer? I'll accept that one. Mama is the rover's largest instrument and is going to be looking for organic molecules, and uh, it's it's basically lasers and mass spectrometers built in Germany at, and at NASA's Goddard and at various institutes in France. So, wow. We're really going in on Mars. Well, of course, the only problem with the uh, Rosalind Franklin rover is that it it might not go in this window because of the parachute issues, but there have been some good news coming out of tests recently done there. So hopefully it's back on track. But you know space, Jamie, you know space. One of these missions is not going to go, I'm pretty certain. I do, yes. Well, we'll keep our fingers and toes crossed firmly. Yeah, so China, Jamie, this is an exciting one. Oh, yeah. Mars Global Remote Sensing Orbiter and a small rover, which is going to be called the Huzheng-1 or HX-1. More Mars stuff. Yeah, well, that, well, this four Mars missions. We're on. This is Mars mission number three. God damn! And that's going to be launched probably in the same week as the uh, European stroke Russian Franklin rover, and that's going to go on the Long March Five heavy lift rocket. So that's why it was so important that that worked. Uh, it's a decade after China uh, collaborated with the Russians on the doomed Phobos Grunt mission. The lander carrying the rover will use a parachute, retro rockets, and an airbag to achieve landing. What do you think about that? It's going to be powered by solar panels and probe the ground with radar, also performing chemical analysis of the soil to look for bio- biochemicals and, as you said, biosignatures. Mm. What's a biosignature, Matt? Is it like, is it when people ask me for an autograph? 
No, it's more like when I walk into your bedroom and go, oh, what's that smell? That's a biosignature. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, yeah, it's more like that. So, yeah. Um, yeah, it's likely to be flying yeah in the first in the same week as that ESA mission, or or it it can it can go in a in in a window that lasts until the fifth of August, and again landing in February twenty twenty one. It's also going to uh, probably do the old caching of samples for retrieval in twenty thirty. Ah, gotcha. Now. What nation do you think are involved in the fourth mission? Well, I know this because I saw it on Twitter. Matt, it's the United Arab Emirates. We're going full circle. What's the name of this uh, uh, mission? Hope Mars Mission. And and you said hope will kill you. Oh, this is what I'm worried about. Oh, I'm blooming hope that that doesn't it, that, that the rocket's not that powerful that ends up in, ends up hitting London. Yeah, it's not. Right. It's not built by Werner von Braun, is it? Oh, don't say that. <laughs> so, uh, yes, it's on a Japanese rocket. So that's going to be, uh, yeah, taking off and 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 yeah, going to. It's it's only an orbiter, so it's not it's not a rover. This one. Okay. When I say only, it's pretty impressive that the UAE are going to be sending stuff. What's it studying in, into deep space? Uh, the atmosphere looking for uh, trying to answer some of these questions about what the hell's going on with Mars's oxygen and hydrogen and uh, how it loses it into, into space. Yeah, Tail as old as time. But we won't see that get into orbit until July 2021. Okay, we'll wait for that one. There's three landings in there, a Chinese, an American, and a European stroke Russian. Now... It has to be said, the odds for landing are particularly poor. The Russians have never managed it. Everything they've sent has not has failed. Same with the Europeans, and particularly the same with the British as well. All a bit of a disaster. Uh, the oh. USA, of course, manage it pretty much every time, so they're absolutely bang out at doing it. But, um, yeah, it, it's it's going to be stressful. It is going to be stressful, least. but exciting nonetheless. We... We go forward. Right. So what's happening at the moon, Jamie? What's happening at the moon this year, do you think? Well, December 2020, Matt, China, Chang'e 5, the first sample return mission to the moon since Luna 24 in 1976. Chang'e 5, again, will use the recent developed launch Long March 5 heavy lift rocket. So there you go. So that's, yes, Chang'e 5. Basically, uh, carrying on the success of Chang'e 4. So if that exactly. really does go in December, that's going to be super exciting. Oh, lots, incredible. Lots, lots more cameras landing on the moon. Yes. But it's, it's the fact that it's yeah going to be picking up samples and returning them. Incredible. They've it's, got their sets uh, sites fully set on the moon, haven't they, China? Yeah, so that it's... You know, well, China, you know, this is, this is it. China... Are really looking for space dominance. They really are. Uh, we've got a couple of things happening out with asteroid samples. We've got Osiris Rex that's still uh, that's going to attempt scraping the surface of Bennu in July. Bennu, Bennu, yeah. and Hayabusa two will be landing in Australia in December. Quality. Really excited about that. It's close that, to my that heart, is, that one. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a mega one. There's a couple of sun missions. We've got ESA's Solar Orbiter launching this year. Yeah. And the Indian ISRO 
Aditya L1, and I presume the L1 stands for the fact that it's going to the Earth Sun Lagrange point L1 to study the sun. Go on, India. Yes. Quite a few things happening with humans in space, Jamie. Oh, yeah. We've got, of course, something that we've been... This is what we've said at the beginning of 2019 and 2018, that we're going to see Boeing and SpaceX put humans into space. But hopefully, for goodness sake, it has to happen this year. (laughs) We have said this before, haven't we? (laughs) Well, Well, for the last... Literally the last two years. I mean, this yeah. is it's it's starting to become stressful now. So yeah, February we might see SpaceX launch astronauts for the first yes. time, and then a little bit later we'll see Boeing with the SCST one hundred. Mm, so Ooh-hoo. that's uh, that's a big one. That's big one. It's got to happen this year. I mean, it really does have to happen this year. Um, Long March 5 again, Jamie. Long March 5B. There will be the maiden flight of a Long March 5B, which is the crewed Chinese spacecraft, important for their um, space station, etc., etc. And maybe an attempt at a moon landing with humans. (gasps) And, of course, India are going to be testing their Gaganyan <laughs> uh, capsule well said, this year yeah. as well. So, uh, yeah, America, China, and India all t- all testing their human capability of getting into human space with humans. I'm <laughs> ready. Like how I said that? Take me. Yes, uh, space stations. Looks like China are going to be trying to get uh, bits of their space station up in October. The new heavenly palace. Love that. Could be delayed till 2021. I'm going to do a quick. I know. I I know how you love these, Jamie. But I'm going to do a quick rundown of maiden flights of rockets. If this isn't quick, and I know our listeners, they will have a revolt. Ready? Go. Ariane six. That's a big one. That's a big one. It's not quick enough. The Japanese H (laughs) three. Yeah. Uh, which is actually quite similar to the Ariane 6, the, the sort of smaller version of it. The big one, the big one that everyone is just going to lose their shit over if it happens is, Starship. of course, <laughs> going to be Starship going orbital. That I mean, that Incredible. literally, that, well, well, I just can't even begin to uh, imagine how amazing that will be. Uh, a bunch of sea launches. Yeah. Uh, it looks like Sea Launch, the company itself, are going uh, back in sort of business. So we might see a few sea launches there's going to be the maiden flight of launcher one of course that means that we might see orbital launches from the uk very soon yeah uh the maiden flight of india's small satellite launch vehicle the sslv Uh uh-huh the maiden flight of firefighter alpha yeah that's pretty exciting first orbital launch attempt by the astra commercial small sat launch vehicle Mm-hmm. Maiden flight of the Chinese Ceres 1. Tick. Maiden flight of the European Vega C. Vega. Maiden flight of the Taiwanese Happith 5. Well, that does make me Happith. Maiden. <laughs> nice. Maiden flight of the Japanese Blue Whale 1. Oh, I love whales. Stop killing them, though, Japan. Here's a big, big, yes. big, big, big. Big, big, big one. Maiden flight of NASA's Space 
launch system. Damn. Please oh go my. well. Maiden flight of the Zhilong 2, also known as the Smart Dragon. Yeah, another that Chinese. Is true. Maiden flight of the Kaizhou 11, another Chinese. Mm-hmm. Maiden flight of the Long March 6A. Maiden flight of the Chinese Nebula 1. Have you, have you China spotted are absolutely <laughs> killing it? Yeah, this is, you know, China are killing it. They really are. Crikey. Let's see you how know they what? get on. Good luck, China. But I think one of the biggest news stories of this year is going to be internet satellite constellations yes here we go already starting to get into the news of course of the spacex ones that are that are did you see that, that image i was just of, about to say of, uh, that photo blew my mind it's like there was, geez there's a couple there was one that of the of of the people in norfolk going what, what, what are all these ufos over overhead like i i keep seeing like light after light after light we're being invaded and then someone pointed out no they're the starlinks oh, and there's photos that were coming out which is like oh my god mm. it's it's unbelievable but the yeah the, then that photo of of like a you know multiple frames of yeah, trying to take a picture of apart. Orion. Crazy. And it's like, oh my word. <laughs> Absolutely smeared to hell. Of yeah. course they're going to they're gonna go higher and, and become less visible than that. But still, it's a problem as we shall hear yes. from our next guest. One web, Jamie, flies under the UK flag, by the way. One web, of course, also putting up probably six hundred satellites by the end of the year. Damn, that's a lot. Both Starlink and OneWeb will probably have some form of operation, hmm. i.e. be selling to customers at some point in the year. So SpaceX expects to begin operation of its Starlink 2020. 720 satellites launched by the end of the year. That's a lot. An extra 50% of working satellites. Hmm. Yeah. Well, good yeah. luck, everybody. We remain sceptical. Do you want to hear the interview with our next guest? I absolutely want to hear it. Let's roll that tape. Why, this is Moribar Jha, who's an American space scientist. And you can see his TED Talks, but he's a really, really nice guy, really cool, and what a distinguished career he's had as well. Just take a listen. Incredible stuff. A coote. The Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace Back into space! I've been reading a little bit about your background. It's a very interesting journey. You're actually the same age as me, I notice, although you look a lot better on it. Um, <laughs> can you tell us a little bit <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about your journey and uh, how you got to be where you are today and what you're actually doing today? Yeah, so um, once I graduated from high school, I actually enlisted in the US military and my job, in the U.S. military as an enlisted person was to safeguard uh, nuclear weapons, nuclear missiles uh, in Montana. I was stationed in Montana. And interestingly enough, uh, you know, the, the, skies, the skies in Montana are, are, are quite dark at night, which is phenomenal for people that have never seen what, what, the, what the stars look like in a place with very little light pollution. I highly uh, suggest it. But uh, interestingly enough, during my night shifts and looking up at the stars, 
because you know there there wasn't any real terrorism going on. So so I was protecting protecting the United States from from random cows that would uh, go around the nuclear <laughs> missile sites. And um, I would notice these dots going across the sky, and the dots. Uh, occasionally it would be, you know, kind of these shooting stars or, or, or you know, meteors. Uh, but then it's, it, it dawned on me, well, it's not a plane. These aren't shooting stars. So what are these dots that I see going across the sky? And when I did a little bit of research, you know, lo, lo and behold, uh, these things are human-made objects orbiting the Earth, satellites, debris, and all this stuff. And so that really... I couldn't believe that with my naked eye, I was seeing things like, uh, you know, satellites orbiting orbiting the planet, and I think that really solidified my interest in in orbital uh, mechanics and that sort of stuff. And so I left I left the military after my enlistment and um, went to study at this place called Embry Riddle Aeronautical University in, in Arizona, and I studied aerospace engineering, and I never really thought you know, uh, realistically that I'd be working in space, but I had a pretty good mentor, Ron Madler, who had, uh, he had worked in orbital debris during his graduate work at University of Colorado at Boulder. And he, and he was a very good mentor. And I got involved in the, you know, Arizona, uh, space grant program. It's a, you know, NASA space grant program in Arizona. And I started doing research regarding orbits and that's kind of how all that began. Uh, I went off to, to graduate school at the University of Colorado at Boulder uh, under uh, the late uh, George Bourne. He, he was a great mentor as well. Um, and, you know, got more and more involved in, in astrodynamics or orbital mechanics, the, the science that studies uh, how things move in space. And, you know, one thing led to the next, and I ended up getting a job uh, at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory um, as a spacecraft navigator. Uh, which really means just being on a team of people to help, you know, deliver uh, rovers and, and orbiters to, to other planets and, and other celestial bodies. And I was really focused on Mars, and I did a handful of uh, Mars missions, and, you know, one one with the European Space Agency, Mars Express, and then one with the Japanese, this Hayabusa that went to Asteroid Itokawa. But in sometime in 2004... There was a, a conference. I'm part of several professional societies, and there was a conference uh, for astrodynamics that was on Maui. And I went with my wife and son to Maui, and in nine days, uh, basically, my family fell in love with the island. And uh, I, I was told in, in no uncertain terms that my days at, at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab in Pasadena were numbered because I needed to find employment on Maui. <laughs> So, so in a moment of weakness, uh, I was able to find a job on Maui, and uh, I left JPL and started basically working for the Air Force Research Laboratory, which has uh, a number of telescopes on top of Mount Haleakala, and that's where my focus shifted from Mars to, to near-Earth orbit, and I started uh, really studying this population of human-made objects around Earth, and this is where I started getting involved more in, in the current debris problem and that sort of thing. Yeah, so I've I've seen that you describe yourself or, or, or are described as a space environmentalist. What exactly does that mean, and and what are the sort of things that we should be concerned about? Yeah, so so I would say this: um, three things for people uh, listening to really consider is that uh, near Earth space is 
geopolitically contested. That's been uh, the truth ever since the launch of Sputnik. You know, different countries, you know, vying for the ultimate high ground of space and different services and capabilities that space can afford. Now that landscape is changing drastically and being dominated by commercial activities. So, so, so the second theme is space is commercially contested, uh, even though the Outer Space Treaty says that it's, you know, res communis, uh, near space belongs uh, to all of humanity. There's sort of this uh, squatter's rights uh, uh, sort of mentality in that um, even though we have no deeds for orbital uh, orbital space, uh, physics physics tells us that two, two things cannot occupy the same space at the same time uh, unless bad things happen as a result. Uh, and so whoever gets to certain orbital altitudes and is able to uh, populate those with their assets pretty much owns that orbital altitude. It's going to be very difficult if you have tens of thousands of satellites at a given orbital altitude, uh, let's call it an orbital highway. Um, once, once, you, once you've populated a highway and you have a lot of traffic on the highway, uh, you know, it's very difficult for other, other vehicles to, to, to enter and, and participate in that highway, which yeah. brings me. Yeah. Yeah. Go so, ahead. Yeah. Well, I was just about to say, I mean, you've got, you're talking about these lanes. Is, is there a specific reason why there are kind of lanes of orbits? Yeah, absolutely. And so, so this is, which this is great because it feeds into the, the third and kind of the last theme here is that, uh, near earth space is a finite resource. And, you know, even though one can think of outer space as being infinite, uh, the region around, uh, earth in terms of orbits is finite. And, Basically, here's the deal, Matt. When we launch satellites, we like to save as much money as possible. And there's this, there's this thing that we call gravity, which, which dominates uh, how things behave in space. And so we try to take advantage of nature as much as possible. What's the natural, what are the natural flows, the natural accelerations that something will experience in space? That way we don't have to find artificial means of fighting it. It's almost like, uh, you know, if, if you want to navigate uh, on the oceans, the easiest thing to do is for you to use the currents to take you where you want to go versus fighting the current, because that's an expensive proposition. So you should think of, the, think of it very much uh, the same way in space, is that we have gravity, which is dominating the, the accelerations of all objects up there, and we don't want to fight gravity, because that's expensive. And so because we don't want to fight gravity, there are ideal kind of orbital highways to put satellites on that give us uh, the ability to have access to specific services and capabilities. You know, one in particular is a region called, you know, geosynchronous, which really just means that uh, it's an orbital altitude, an orbital highway, where it takes a satellite about 24 hours to go around its orbit once. And, and as you can uh, deduce, that, that is equivalent to an Earth day. And so uh, the cool thing about that orbit is that when you put a satellite there, uh, from the ground's perspective, because the orbital period is equivalent to an Earth day, it means that if you want uh, you know, direct TV or satellite TV, you don't have to continuously move your antenna around. You just point it in a specific direction and the satellite will generally be in the same region of the sky. So that's a Goldilocks orbital highway. That's great. 
But if that highway became unusable and you had to use propellant to fight gravity to stay in that same region in space, that would significantly decrease the, the lifetime of your mission and significantly increase the cost that would be passed on to users and all that other stuff. So, so that's why it's a finite resource. There, there, there's only one geosynchronous region. There aren't many of those. So we need to protect the environment. And this is where this idea of space environmental uh, uh, concerns comes in. This whole me, me being a space environmentalist is that uh, I really want to achieve long-term sustainability of this orbital ecosystem, uh, as it were, and, and, and very much trying to get people to realize that it is a finite resource and, and it's in need of environmental protection. Yeah, I mean, talking about that geosynchronous orbit, I mean, I was reading a paper not, not that long ago that was talking about collisions that are already happening in that in that orbit and i just i was absolutely amazed that something that's an orbit that's so vast really you've already got these collisions starting to happen i mean that looks to me like we're ruining our future almost that we're ruining like a like you said this finite resource is is this something we should be really really concerned about you know the reality of it is this we 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 do have um small particles that are always bombarding uh you know actively controlled working satellites. Uh, most of the stuff that's up there never comes back. So, so we're, you know, what we've done to the oceans with plastics and whatnot is what we're doing to near-Earth space. Um, and what we need is we need, you know, kind of a, a global community to really embrace, uh, you know, certain tenets of, of sustainability, of sustainable behavior if we want to preserve that environment kind of long-term because, you know, the services and capabilities that we depend on on a daily basis are becoming increasingly uh, uniquely space-based services and capabilities. So as an example, um, you know, position, navigation, and timing, that's pretty much space-based. Uh, what does that affect aside from you getting directions on your phone, you know, air traffic, uh, uh, also on the oceans, maritime, things on, on land as well, using GPS and whatnot. The timing piece also manifests itself in, in uh, financial transactions. You know, banking systems time transactions based on space-based position navigation and timing services. So imagine if we if we lost some of these capabilities, uh, what would happen if you went if you went to a bank and and couldn't retrieve your money? Uh, that would be a bad day, not just for you, but many people would be. Uh, you know, shaking their fists in, in, in uproar and condemnation. Um, and that's just one of many services that, that is space-based. I mean, the internet itself, now we have both Amazon and SpaceX wanting to provide global internet. I've even heard of, of people wanting to get cloud computing services to be space-based so that they're not vulnerable to, to, to you know, ground-based infrastructure activities and that sort of thing. So more and more, the, the technology that we depend on is is a uh, you know service provided uniquely by space-based capabilities and losing that uh, capability would basically throw us back you know a century in terms of technology. Yeah, so uh, that that ocean analogy came up uh, quite recently. I think it was Jan Jan Werner at the um, at some European space agency meeting was talking about. Can you imagine if you know the 
if he was talking about space debris and he was sort of saying, you, you know, imagine if the oceans, every single shipwreck was still on the surface, just how bad it would be to kind of navigate. But in, in a way, that doesn't cover the kind of speed and an almost intractable you can't you, you can't it's almost like these objects are going so fast you can't just sweep them up you can't gather them in and you've got things like kessler syndrome that uh, are, are an additional problem on top of say like the the analogy you made earlier on about plastics in the ocean so sh this problem seems to be one that's extremely difficult to sort out and is is it more to do with trying to avoid there being this kind of massive problem in the first place or is it we've already created a problem and we need to, to try and think of solutions to roll back that problem a little bit before it gets out of hand yeah so i would say it's probably the latter of what you said and interestingly enough matt one of the things that um you know, this is this is one of the things that I, I think makes me a little bit different than some of my other colleagues is that, you know, when, when I'm looking at sustainability, you know, the, the United Nations just adopted 21 guidelines towards long-term sustainability uh, in Vienna at the Committee on Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. And these 21 guidelines are, are, are a great start. Uh, I, I think they're insufficient, but it's a great start. The thing that's missing from these guidelines is that um, they haven't necessarily been motivated by other examples of successful sustainability that we've seen on the planet. And what I mean by that specifically uh, is the, the, the knowledge that certain indigenous people have. So, so there's this thing called traditional ecological knowledge, or TEK, and uh, it's the knowledge that you know, people like the, the Maori in New Zealand uh, the Aborigines in Australia, the, the Inuit uh, uh, in the Arctic. These are indigenous people that have, for thousands of years, developed a process to thrive in regions with uh, ecological scarcity, where they had to strike a balance with the environment uh, and, 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 and achieve sustainability that way. You know, no, no overfishing, understanding the relationship between themselves and everything in a given ecosystem and how these things interact, you know, gathering careful observations, passing that down from generation to generation. Uh, these are things that, you know, are, these tenets of TEK are things that I believe should be foundational uh, to applying to space so that we can achieve space sustainability. And so that's one of the things that I'm trying to really push is uh, tell people, listen, we don't have to reinvent the wheel on sustainability. Let's look at where uh, certain indigenous people for thousands of years have found uh, a few gold nuggets on how to behave uh, to, to achieve that. When you've got the exploitation of space that's being driven mostly by capitalism, is there a is there a, can you think of a uh, with, with that? principle in mind can you think of 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 a a solution that you've that you've thought of that that could apply in in sticking satellites up and using this near space environment yeah so um one of the things that i firmly believe is that making lots of money is not uh mutually exclusive from environmental sustainability 
and and doing good for humankind. So, so I think both can coexist uh, uh, quite nicely. And you know, when when uh, when I hear this question from you, one of the things that that it brings up is you know, with the World Economic Forum uh, has an activity right now uh, on developing a so-called space sustainability rating, an SSR, that would act to incentivize sustainable behavior. And it would be a rating that people could get that's much analogous to uh, a rating that people get for, you know, in the hotel industry, you know, five-star hotel, a five-star restaurant. Well, here's a five-star space actor that's behaving sustainably. And so we're actually developing that under this activity with the World Economic Forum. And I think that um, that that can go hand in hand with, with supporting uh, space commerce and helping capitalism in space, but doing so in a way that, uh, you know, preserves that environment for money making for many, many generations uh, to come. Yeah, well, with I suppose with the hotel industry, you've got the general public that are looking at things like the five star ratings and and making their purchase choices on that. How can you how can you uh, twist that kind of model so that people want to just spend their money with the five star providers rather rather than the provider that's just turning around and saying, "Hey, I'll I'll just do it cheaper." And presumably by cheaper they mean they're not going to bother working out how they're going to bring their enormous satellite down once it's run out of fuel. So. Yeah, so, yeah, no, so this is great. So one of the things that we're working on here uh, at UT Austin uh, specifically to, to achieve this kind of space safety, security, and sustainability are three things that I'm trying to deliver with our science and, and policy. Uh, in making sure that space is more transparent making sure that activities in, sp in space are more predictable, and then gathering a body of evidence that can be used to hold people accountable for their behavior. So transparency, predictability, and accountability. Those are the three things that, that I'm, I'm using as, as yardsticks, measuring sticks for the work that we're doing. So to me, you know, when I, when I travel the globe and I speak to people, when you give people a choice, an option, so, you know, when you say, hey, you can either invest in these things and you can get this return on investment in five years, but it's to the detriment of uh, an environment and this sort of stuff long term. Or you could follow this path, which will still get you money, still get you services and almost guarantees that that this is something that you could get uh, for the foreseeable future. You know, indefinitely, most people will choose the latter. Given that, especially if it's if if the transparency piece is there, so so I want nothing to hide in space. I want all activities from all actors to be very transparent. If somebody blows up their own satellite in some orbit, I want that to be globally known who did it, when, uh, and then leave it to to humanity to make some decisions on, you know, how to how to take take that evidence. And kind of curtail these sorts of behaviors. Naming and shaming is is something that has worked in the past uh, uh, in other domains for sure. Yeah, that that that's really really interesting. I mean, is is have you have you developed a system for showing this kind of transparency at all? Yeah, so so we've taken a, a very good first step at this, and uh, we've developed this knowledge graph database called Astria Graph, and. Uh, it's it's um, 
It can be accessed visually uh, through a web, web-based platform, uh, and it basically shows uh, a number of, of dots around the planet, all human-made space objects, and it's kind of like a crowdsourcing of multiple databases that shows all these opinions about what's in space. And these things don't necessarily uh, agree with each other all the time, which makes it quite interesting. Yeah, it's. I was playing with it last night, and I sent it over to the guys in the uh, our Patreons over in the Discord. And the 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 same question that came to me was, um, uh, what are the yellow and orange and red smears in the map? Yeah. So so um, when it comes to astrograph itself and and that visualization, uh, the 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 yellow stuff are things that are working, and everything else is some. Uh, some version of garbage, whether it's an intact satellite, uh, presumably a fragment of something, uh, or a rocket body. Uh, so, so, so those those are kind of the co- and then gray is just um, I think just plain debris. And there's pink, which is we don't know what it is. We know that uh, we know that it's a human-made object, but we can't really it's uncategorized. We don't have a, a category to fit that in. So, so it requires more more information. Oh crikey! So yeah, you you really do get a kind of <laughs> feel for the mess, then, don't you? Absolutely. Yeah, that, that it, it's it's. I suppose one of the problems with a uh, with displaying it like that is that the area is so vast, and therefore the dots aren't really to scale. You kind of feel exactly. as though it, it, it's it's really really cluttered, but it's not. Um, so the second part of of that of of what I asked earlier about, do we need to roll it back a little bit? Uh, what are your thoughts on some of the uh, some of the missions that um, happened quite recently? I actually work in a, t- in a town called Guildford, which is where they built the removed debris mission. Did you did you see that one? And, uh, and yeah. what, what are your thoughts on on those kind of missions? Are we, are we are we going in the right direction, or do you think that's a bit of a false step? Yeah, so um, I think it's technology that we need to develop. It's probably a so-called long pole in the tent. So, so the sooner that we can uh, do that, the better, because the solutions need to be hybrid. I mean, some of it is curtailing our behavior to mitigate the further preponderance of debris. Some of it means grabbing stuff and doing debris removal for remediation of the current population. So there's a number of, of, of things that we need to do. I, I uh, I don't. I tend not to be a Lord of the Rings, one ring to rule them all kind of guy. I like having uh, multiple approaches to be more surgical with stuff and and all hands on deck sort of thing. And in fact, when it comes to the clean space uh, activity, I, I was in Switzerland last week, and uh, you know Muriel Richard from uh, EPFL, uh, she's going to be leading, I guess, this thing, uh, you know, on behalf of ESA and. Uh, I think there's an opportunity for, for, for collaboration between our research program here at UT Austin with uh, ESA Clean Space. So I'm, I'm, quite, I'm quite excited about it, actually, and I think it's, I think it's a great thing. Yeah, well, th- yeah. I mean, it's, um, it's, it just seems to be such a huge problem where you have to send up one satellite to get one satellite down. It seems to be, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it seems to be like a very, very hard nut to crack. Um, where, where do we where do we where do we go on from here? Is there any other kind of solutions apart from the incentivizing environmental awareness from the companies that stick these things up? These 
companies and space agencies developing um, spa- uh, debris removal systems. Are there any other kind of uh, avenues to explore? Yeah, so here's the thing, right? I think we need to we need to have more candid conversations with a more diverse group of folks. Uh, I, I believe not only in diversity, but inclusivity. And to me, the difference between diversity and inclusivity is inclusivity is when the diversity has an equal voice. Uh, so, so, so to me, having a room full of, of people from all walks of life is insufficient. Uh, the people from all walks of life actually need to have uh, part and parcel in, in the decisions, decision-making processes uh, that, that ensue. I think having, um, you know, fora where we can have these very, uh, uncomfortable and candid conversations, uh, are needed. You know, one example is, is, is with the, the, the ascend, uh, uh, event that's going to happen in Argula one, which is going to happen in November of next year. Uh, that's going to be like, you know, Ted talk, Ted talk on steroids specific to space. Uh, which is great, and and I think, you know, having uh, people like like these indigenous folks, may, maybe you know, finding a way to get people from the Inuit and Aborigines and the Maori and and those sorts of folks in the room to just get their, you know, uh, opinion is like, listen, when you look at the skies, what do you see? Have you seen changes? You know, generally generationally, through stories handed down, what's been the difference? Uh, I mean, they've they've witnessed climate change. They've witnessed uh, changes in different ecosystems. I'm sure that they have an opinion about stuff in space. But everybody needs to be in that room, you know. And I think, uh, you know, ha- having dedicated events that force that to happen, not just inviting people, but basically going out of your way to make sure that those people are in the room. Listen, one one of the things that's very disappointing to me is I see a lot of technical um, technical conferences. And it's 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 the U.S. and 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 you know U.S. allies and that sort of stuff in the room, and and it's like okay, well, we're the Chinese in the discussion, we're the Russians in the discussion, we're the Indians in the discussion, we're the, so we need to find ways to get those people, not just invited, but to make sure that they are critical and indispensable partners in coming up with solutions moving forward to try to achieve that space safety, security, and sustainability. Yeah, that, there are just so many parallels, aren't there, with, with climate change as well in terms of trying to get all the stakeholders in, involved is, is, is an absolute imperative, isn't it? Because, you've, because we're all suffering from climate change and we can all potentially suffer from, from uh, you know, a space environmental catastrophe as, as, as well. Which kind of brings me on to one question. Obviously, we're just about to see the launch of these huge constellations of satellites. We've already seen SpaceX in one year increase the working satellite um, population by about five percent, and next year it'll it'll shoot up even more. Are, are you con- are you pretty con- presumably that there's a a high you've got a high level of concern about those constellations? So I I do. And, and uh, the concerns that I have are the following. Um, I, I'm very concerned about a tragedy of the commons because again, near earth space is a finite resource. And if everybody just behaves independently 
and and in their own kind of self-interest, I believe that it it uh, is highly likely to be to the detriment of of all of us. Um, you know, when when SpaceX, for instance, with their Starlink satellites, when they automate maneuvers, sure, all the Starlink satellites know where each one is to within maybe a few feet. Do they know where the non-Starlink satellites are to within a few feet? No. So, so, so what's the decision-making criteria for being safe or getting out of the way? Right now, it's based on opinions from the U.S. Department of Defense, specifically U.S. Space Command, with these warnings uh, of collision risk. Are these warnings 100% uh, accurate and, and precise? No. They have their own flaws for a variety of reasons, which you know go beyond the scope of the podcast. But I can tell you that uh, automating automation is the way to go. Uh, eventually, automation based on uh, the absence of of great information, I think, is stupid, and I think is 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 a dangerous uh, behavior to have. To be honest, so I think prematurely doing these things doesn't make sense. And having this mentality of well, we'll learn from our failures. We can't tolerate that in, in an environment that, that should be environmental, environmentally protected. So I have issues uh, with that. You know, all the Constellation owners and managers, it's not like they've gotten in a room and said, we're going to hold ourselves to these standards and we're not going to move out of the way until we have, you know, this is the way we're going to quantify collision risk. And these are the, you know, we're going to all have a standard for when we move out of way, you know, who turns left and right like these rules of thumb, that has not been done holistically. So that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's certainly a problem that I see with the constellations. And I think one of the last things that I have a concern with is this. Mother Nate, from all of my scientific endeavors, I can, see, I can tell you that what I've noticed is that nature always seeks equilibrium. Nature always seeks equilibrium. Uh, whether it's stable or unstable, uh, there's several flavors of, of, of equilibria, but nature always seeks this, this st state of equilibrium. And I can tell you that, you know, if we're launching things every two weeks, which is what, you know, I've heard SpaceX say, well, yeah, every two weeks we want to put up like 60 Starlinks or whatever. Really, do we believe that the environment can reach this equilibrium state every two weeks? Like we don't even know what the impact is of launching all these things at that rate. Like we should launch some stuff, observe it for a while, do some science, right? Get, do some knowledge gathering. This is one of the tenets of traditional ecological knowledge. Observe, see, see how the, the environment is reacting. And once we can kind of assess, okay, this is how the environment is moving towards this, this uh, equilibrium. Now we know what the effect is of putting 60 things up there at a time with all this background clutter and the debris. Now we, we, we can be more informed and say, we should be launching at this rate. You know, this is the right rate to launch at because we need to give the system time to reach this state of equilibrium, or whatever. We don't even know that. So to me, it's just this kind of gold rush. Uh, let's put as much stuff up there as quickly as possible uh, in the absence of really understanding the dynamics of this orbital ecosystem. And I think that that's, we're, we're, we're out in front of the headlights, as, as they say. I think, I think space activities is far outpacing a regulatory framework that can uh, maximize orbital safety, security, and sustainability.
Yeah, that's that's a real some really interesting points. I mean, I, I, it's worth noting, isn't it, that ESA uh, had to move one of its um, very expensive Earth observation satellites, Aeolus, earlier on in the year because they couldn't they couldn't even contact SpaceX. SpaceX when one of their Starlinks was actually on a collision course with it there was a breakdown even in just the most basic communication so that, that it clearly hadn't been thought out at all and and the fact that we've got all these astronomers moaning about the light pollution and that hadn't really been thought of before these things were launched I, I, it seems like there was a whole bunch of unknowns that are now kind of rearing their ugly heads so I can clearly I can clearly see the point that you're making there it's it's um it's it almost seems it almost seems obvious uh, is 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 there a point we, we you could actually get to just like in the environmental uh climate change um sense that you have tipping points where where there's a tipping point that once you've gone over it you re- you really will have a nightmare to try and row back to a previous position yeah so so i can tell you this right um one of the tenets of, of, of traditional ecological knowledge is understanding the carrying capacity of the ecosystem. Um, I know that the European Space Agency, their space debris program uh, in Darmstadt, they have a concept of orbital capacity, which I think is, is great because I, I fully embrace that. And I think that we haven't fully agreed on how to quantify that orbital capacity. Like that's something that we should definitely all work on together, understand the carrying capacity of these orbital highways to sustain uh, safe uh, operations long term. And then, because that capacity is not just in the number of objects, but it's also dominated by uh, the uncertainty uh, around around knowledge about uh, where those objects are and how those objects are going to behave. I can tell you right now, uh, the carrying capacity of air, of, of the air domain for air traffic. Um, right now, we have many, many more planes in the air, but we know where they're located much more precisely. You know, 40, 50 years ago, there's no way that LAX or New York or, or uh, you know, even Heathrow could sustain the current air traffic because there was a lot of ambiguity with where these things were located, how they were traveling and all that other stuff and, and the technology to manage that. But as precision has gotten much, much better with space-based capabilities, uh, uh, in fact, we can handle many, many more objects, but there is a finite capacity, carrying capacity of, of, of the air to sustain air traffic. So the same thing is the same thing for space, man. There's a finite capacity uh, of these orbital highways, and we need to be able to quantify this and make it very much known. And back to your point about the astronomers and and the light pollution kind of stuff. Yeah, I I, I I point back to traditional ecological knowledge. It's when when you have when you're looking at how to manage a finite resource, you need to get the voices and opinions of all people, uh, even though you may not think it's relevant. Yeah, what does this do to the night sky? How does this imp- impact science that's done on the ground looking at the heavens? Like. Like you said, this was not something that was accounted for, uh, uh, surprisingly. But it's because people aren't thinking in this kind of holistic way, uh, and and we need to do that. We need to start doing that. Yeah, I mean, it it it, see, it seems really that that a, a bit like say 
uh, the use of fossil fuels, that the manufacturers and the people profit- profiting from from those uh, from the sale of, of things aren't actually paying the full price. So we've kind of learnt the lesson with fossil fuels and and climate change. So is is that a model that we should be kind of really looking at and saying? People aren't paying the full price here for for populating. If if Starlink want to populate the the um, the sky with their with with a with their internet service, then they're not paying a full price because there's a lot of other people that now have to do workarounds, and there's other people's lives that, like you said, I mean, I wouldn't want to be an Aborigine looking up at the night sky and have my sky changed. It it, it changes it for everyone. So. How, how do you make people pay the uh, pay the full price for something, or, or or am I barking up the wrong tree? Shouldn't shouldn't I be thinking like that? Well, I think I think it's it's bringing these examples that are very real uh, and meaningful into some common narrative uh, where 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 all of us can can talk about this stuff. Like right now, if you go to again, if you go to like a space conference like the IAC. You're not going to hear this. You're not going to hear the voices of Aborigines and that sort of stuff because, well, you know, what what do the Aborigines care with satellites and that sort of thing? That's the wrong mentality. So having some sort of forum where uh, it's not just, you know, scientists and engineers, but it's also indigenous people. It's also kind of, you know, people, everyday folks that maybe have uh, supposedly nothing to do with space, but space is part of their heritage, Um, you know, we, we need to have a, this kind of candid conversation and bring up all these examples so that people can have an aha moment. I think when people have, when people are exposed to all of these sorts of things, I think it's much easier for people to say, right, I hadn't thought about that. And that is a good point. I think in general, uh, nine out of 10 times, people want to do the right thing, whatever that means. Uh, but they need to, it needs to be known. It needs to be exposed. It needs to be discussed and talked about. And I think that's the first step. Yeah, that it's 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 quite a fact. It is it, it it's that's definitely opened up my my uh, my ideas about the the subject. I, mean, I was I was just thinking it kind of reminds me of the of spectrum itself, like the the UHF spectrum or radio spectrum, that the way that they sell off chunks of it and saying, well, you know, you can now operate in this one chunk. That it's it's this finite resource. That actually is becoming more and more expensive and tighter and tighter and tighter, and it's and it's highly governed, particularly in this country. Uh, the, the the kind of UHF spectrums, well, the radio spectrums, massively sort of stringently governed. Is that the, it? Could you could you apply that kind of system into 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 these or, orbital highways? Yeah, I I, bl- I believe that that's uh, that that's a model that very well could work, and and certainly should be of high consideration for sure. Uh, right. But, but there's one thing that I've always thought about, and um, I'm not sure how true this is. But is there a point where your debris, where your debris problem, say if we, you had a sort of low Earth, low Earth orbit Kessler syndrome, and the the place was just littered with 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 debris, is there a point where it actually starts to endanger um, deep space missions? Like, say, if we were launching the James Webb Space Telescope, is that something that then has to worry about space debris. In fact, do, do we have to worry about space debris for launching anyway? Yeah, so the answer is yes. Uh, back when I worked at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, we had this thing called COLA analysis, which meant, you know, 
collision collision avoidance analysis, and it was specifically uh, for things like launch, uh, and even you know when you get to Mars or whatever, you know the, the 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 little traffic that already exists at other planets. So the answer is yes, and I can tell you right now that uh, whatever analysis is done currently to issue out licenses for launch in terms of collision avoidance, there's so much that we that we don't know about that it's pretty much guesswork, which is really frightening. And yes, absolutely. I mean, here's the thing. If, if astronauts, you know, I spoke to, um, you know, one of a, a good friend of mine, Susan Helms, a retired astronaut. Uh, she would, she, she told me uh, that, you know, when she would go into certain modules up there uh, in space station, that you could hear, you could hear uh, noises on the outer shell. You could hear ping, 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 ping. And all this stuff was particles that were just hitting the space station. And it was, it was fairly frequent. That's scary. And we just, we just haven't, we, we haven't gotten the science that really give, delivers this knowledge so that we can make informed decisions. Again, we're, we're out in front of the headlights. We're just, we're guessing, we're rushing. And, and that to me is very scary. Yeah, this is a really, really fascinating subject. I mean, and I could, I could, I could keep you. <laughs> I've already kept you for a long time. I could keep you on for absolutely hours and hours and hours. It, we've obviously got a, a, a pretty clued up uh, listenership for the podcast. Is there is there anything that the listeners can go and do and help or or find out more? Yeah, so I would say this, right? Um, you know, one really, uh, you know. Try to engage with the people in, you know, whether it's government or the scientists involved in space and just kind of get coached up on what are the activities, what are they trying to do, and just get informed, get, get as much information as possible. Two, seriously consider my plea to look at models like this traditional ecological knowledge and say, and use that as a lens to say, okay, you want to launch this thing, you want to do this, that, or, or the other. How does that show me how that how you're applying, you know, known tenets of sustainability in what it is that you're doing in your activities? You know, if, if you say that you want to give me this service more cheaply, um, are you doing that in a way that's long term sustainable? Will I have this service in 20 years if you do this? You know, um, and just kind of get get try to get involved uh, in the narratives that way. I think um, I think that's the low hanging fruit. That's the the easiest thing to do. And hopefully, you know, again, we see uh, activities like this uh, Ascend event that's going to happen in November that op open this up to not just being diverse, but inclusive, meaning giving the diversity a voice uh, part and parcel in some of the decision-making processes uh, with what we do with this, you know, finite resource that we call near-Earth space. Has, has there ever been anyone that's gone around canvassing people that don't you know presumably there's you know pockets of population that know nothing about any you know iacs happening or or any of these other meetings happening does anyone actually go out and sort of try and canvas opinion or try and drill down into populations of people that that that, that have a stakehold in it but don't know that they have i would say uh, sadly, Matt, I would say that I'm probably one of very few people doing that. I mean, uh, people all the time are like, "Oh, why are you why why are you talking to software developers, or why are you why why are you part of this uh, 
uh, armadillo con thing that that is basically for sci-fi uh sci-fi writers and blah 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 like what does that have to do with orbital debris it's like back to what we're discussing everybody everybody needs to know about this stuff and be given an opportunity to participate uh and so yeah i, I actively do that there are very few other people that do that um there's just not enough not enough of us actually Where's a, where's a really good place to start with the environment with the uh, sort of traditional environmental solutions? Where's a good place to actually kind of get more clued up on that? Yeah, so so this is something that I've just been researching uh, online. Uh, UT Austin has an environmental sciences institute where I've started a program in space uh, sustainability, um, and and yeah, there there's uh, there's some discussions that I've already had, you know. A, along with this podcast and, and other venues uh, about this stuff. So I, I would just say, just start looking at traditional ecological knowledge uh, online and just getting getting versed with what the tenets of that are and then imagining how these things could be applied to space. Um, and I, get, I guess the last thing for me to mention is um, I'm, I'm very keen on the possibilities of, of me getting more involved in more kind of TV, film uh, type activities to really get the message out there. And so I've already been talking to folks um, in different, in different uh, uh, you know, market areas and TV and film about developing some sort of programming that can, can help reach out to people. So if anybody's interested in that, then uh, I'd be very uh, keen to hear from them. Fan- well, fantastic! I'll I'll put your uh, I'll put your contact on the blog as it goes out with the podcast. Excellent. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much for for joining me. I'll I'll let you get on, and I'll let you get on cracking what is one of the most difficult nuts. Thank you so much, Matt. The Interplanetary Podcast is alive. There you go. That was ace, wasn't it? Very, very cool. There's there's quite a few ideas that I hadn't really considered in there, and really uh, is. Yeah, I'm going to uh, I'm going to have a look at that whole idea of T E K. Uh, traditional ecological knowledge there we go con- concepts that's what I, I, I kind of really like that whole idea so i'm going to look into that jamie as part look of into the, it yeah space environmentalism well it sounds like another podcast to me definitely do a, a few podcasts on that i think we should got a bit of audio that i've been keeping that i might stick on the patreon feed soon of an interview with the european debris controller at damstad Matt, you um, mentioned Patreon. How do you become, if you're new to the show for the new year, maybe mm-hmm. someone's recommended you some new podcasts to listen to and somehow this old nonsense came up. How do you become a patron? Uh, you go to www.interplanetary.org.uk And why is why are the patrons important to us? They're, they're so important because they mean that we can actually do this. It, it would sound like this without the Patreons. That's it. I apologise to everyone else who was hurt by that loud whistle. But Matt, is true. It's very, very true. We rely on you guys. And also, get in touch. We love it when you get in touch. Let us know your thoughts for the year. What are you excited about in 2020? Have you got any stories you think we should cover? People you want us to interview? Let us know. Jamie. Yeah. I think we we should let the the spodcats enjoy the new year enjoy 2020. So glad to have year. you all back again. 
it's going to be an exciting year, and we're here every step of the spaceway. Oh, man, there's some exciting things. We, we're going to go on tour, aren't we? We are going to go on tour, big time. BT. We've got, we've got the 200th episode coming up this year. Yeah. And we've got... We've got a definitely. We're going to be appearing live at um, the Science Museum at some I know. point. That's well exciting, isn't it? Imagine yeah, yeah, us yeah. there. Yes, it's going to be brilliant. So, everyone, time to do something else. <laughs> <laughs> bye, bye, everyone. Bye Have bye. a good weekend. See you soon. Bye, bye. Bye.